Well, turn with me this morning, if you would, to the book of Philippians once again. Philippians chapter 1. This is our fifth week. Uh, That's right, fifth week in Philippians, and we're finally going to wrap up chapter 1. I don't know that each chapter will take five weeks, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, Chapter 1's been a rich chapter. It's been a chapter to slow down and to think about what Paul is saying and some of the truths that he is writing. Paul began just by way of review. Paul began this letter by celebrating the, the fellowship and the status that we have in the gospel. Even in the introduction, even in the introduction, we talked about the freedom of, of servitude, the privilege of being set apart and our gospel partnership together. And then he rejoiced and moved on to talk about the gospel's advance. God's unstoppable grace, the unstoppable gospel, and a life worth living and a death worth dying. Well, this morning as we finish up chapter 1 in these final verses, Paul transitions a bit from this gospel foundation, we might say, to what the gospel inevitably produces in us as a people, as a church. And he begins doing this by by the use of one word. It's translated here as only. Only he begins this morning. You can almost picture Paul kind of putting his finger up. Only, after he said all these things, only his fatherly heart on display. It doesn't matter if I'm there with you or not. This is how you must strive to live. The passage I'm about to read to you, verses 27 through 30, is one long sentence in Greek. So let's listen, be instructed, and be encouraged this morning. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. The Apostle Paul writes, Only let your manner of life Be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Three truths. Three encouragements that I'd like you to see from this one Greek sentence, three English verses. And the first one is this, the gospel has made you citizens of heaven. The gospel has made you citizens of heaven. Eileen Gu. Does anyone recognize that name? Eileen Gu? 
Eileen Gu is the super talented 18-year-old freestyle skier who recently won two gold medals and one silver medal at this year's Olympic Games in Beijing in half-pipe, in big air, and in slope style. Eileen Gu was born in San Francisco. She's headed to Stanford University this fall, and she was super fun to watch. So smooth, so talented. Her jumps so high, her flips so complex. But Whitney and I, Whitney, my daughter, my main Olympic partner, watching partner, we struggled to root for Eileen Gu a bit. We struggled because while Eileen was born an American citizen, she wasn't representing the USA. No, she skied for her home country, excuse me, the home country of her mother, China. Now, putting aside the obstacle of skiing for a country with human rights violations and all that, she's an American. She was born in San Francisco. She was born in California. She was educated here. She's reaped all of the advantages and benefits of the United States, and yet she didn't represent us. Total bummer. She brings up the question, what does citizenship entail? I plant that in your minds this morning because that's how Paul begins this sentence. Verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now this statement reflects a common theme with Paul, one that he expresses in a similar way to other churches. He did it in Ephesus where he says, walk worthy in chapter 4. In Colossae where he says, walk worthy in chapter 1. And in two different letters to the churches of Thessalonica. So it's a common theme of the Apostle Paul. But here in Philippians, Paul uses a unique word that he doesn't use elsewhere. He uses a Greek word, the Greek word that gives us our English word politics. It's a Greek word that contains the Greek noun polis, meaning city. So literally, what he is saying here is behave as citizens of heaven. That is what you and I are. We're going to unpack that in full later in this letter because he's going to say it plainly in chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But why does he put it here in this unique way? Behave as citizens of heaven. Well, remember that, that Philippi, Philippi was a Roman colony. And as such, Philippi had a privileged status with the Roman Empire. You see, Roman citizenship was a privilege. It was not a right. Everyone in the empire did not enjoy the benefits of being citizens. We know Paul had received citizenship. He had actually received citizenship through his parents. The elite, they bought their citizenship through hefty sums of money. But you see, if you were a citizen of Philippi, because of what the emperor had proclaimed about this city, you had been granted citizenship by Rome. 
And so what did that mean? It meant that the Philippians were proud Romans. In fact, remember in Acts 16, when Paul and Silas first came into the city, some of the residents exclaimed, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans. And so what Paul is doing here in verse 27 is he's, he's tapping into the pride of citizenship that pervades this Philippian church, and he's reminding these new believers that there is something more, that there is something greater, that there is a more wonderful privilege than Rome could bestow, namely the gospel has made them citizens of heaven. And he'll say it this way to the Colossians in Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Speaking of Abraham, the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. You see, brothers and sisters, as a result of the otherworldliness of the gospel, the good news that Jesus has accomplished on our behalf, yes, we live in the world, but we are not of the world. We have homes, but this is not ultimately our home. Our allegiance is ultimately elsewhere. And so we begin this morning with just the fact that this sweet reality must change us. It must evoke a response in us. Let your manner of life be worthy. Walk as citizens of heaven. And Paul points now to the response in us. And the second truth I want you to see, and it's this, heavenly citizenship calls us to fight as one. We are all made heavenly citizens. Now heavenly citizenship calls us to fight as one. Let me unpack that simple statement for a moment. The us is the church. Capital C. I mean, Philippi had its own unique time and place, but but this message is for us, for all of God's people. You who are gathered here, you who are watching online, you who are united not because of your age demographic, not because of your common interests and hobbies, not because of your socioeconomic status, but you sit here next to one another, not because of your politics, but because of Jesus. So the us... Is the church, the church of Jesus. And the fighting, the fighting that we're called to is described here in this sentence as standing firm and striving side by side. Now, Philippi was not just a Roman colony, but it was a military town. Tons of military, both active duty and retired, resided there. And Paul taps into that and he reminds them that, hey, you're you're not in peacetime. This is important. It's important for us as well because if if we think we are at peace, 
we will lack urgency and we will prioritize a ton of other things. Be assured this morning that the city workers of Kiev, Ukraine, they're not repainting the curbs this morning in the city center. They're finding ways to protect their families and to protect their homeland. And boy, do we need to be reminded of this often. That the world is more than just what we see. That the world is enchanted. That we are at war. We did this a couple years ago when we were outside when the wheels seemed to be completely coming off in our culture. We reminded ourselves that we have an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We're reminded every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from the evil one. And so there's a fight going on. A fight that we're called to stand firm in and strive side by side together in. And that brings us to the last bit of this statement, and that is that we fight as one. right? Verse 27, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side. Here we go again. The Lord bringing up to us a local congregation in a period when His bride is struggling most with it, the need, the necessity for unity in His church. How many times have we talked about this? I looked back because I felt like a broken record coming to this passage again. We talked about it in early 2020 when we were in the book of 1 Peter. We talked about it in the summer of 2020 when we were in the book of Ephesians. We talked about it in 2021 when we were in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John. Obviously, this was an issue in the church at Philippi. In fact, Paul's going to call some people out later in this letter. But this is a struggle to varying degrees for the church, capital C, in all times and in all places, and especially here and especially now. We fight as one. We can't fight as one if we're fighting one another, if we're distracted by other controversies, whether they're large or whether they're small. And this brings up the question of what should unity What should cooperation look like? In other words, how unified do we really need to be? Well, that's a a bigger answer than I can answer this morning. It's a bigger question than the text asks this morning. But let me remind you, brothers and sisters, that, that, that Paul is writing to a local congregation. So while we can ask questions and Muse about gospel partnership with, with Edmonds Church of God, our, our landlords, our, our Westgate Chapel down the road, and how much gospel unity, how much gospel partnership should we have with them? He's speaking this morning to Edmonds, excuse me, to Ascension Presbyterian Church in Edmonds, Washington. He's speaking to you. He's speaking to me. He's speaking to us. You're here this morning, unless you're a visitor among us, you're here this morning because this is the level of unity that you've chosen, right? 
Biblical, evangelical, reformed, Presbyterian, those are the core things that unite us in the gospel. So, so you might not be able to fight side by side with the, with the Catholics down the street, which is okay, but if you're here this morning, if you're watching online, if you're a member of this body, you've chosen to promise to strive for the purity and peace of a church defined by these things. Are there, are there still differences among us? Of course there are. While not all differences can be put aside, some must be. Why? Because we have bigger things to deal with. You might remember a while back, in one of those sermons, in one of those years, when I talked about unity, I brought up a book that someone had given to me. It's a book called Winsome Convictions. And in, the author, and in it, the authors challenge Christians with three tiers of belief. And I think they're helpful. I'm going to repeat them for those of you who didn't listen the first time, those of you who weren't here the first time. At the top, the top tier of belief are confessional absolutes, right? These are the non-negotiables. The fact that God is a triune God. The fact that Jesus is Lord. The fact that the Bible is God's Word. As conservative Presbyterians, perhaps we want to add God's sovereignty in all things, including our salvation. Male leadership in the church. A traditional view of sexuality. What are your confessional absolutes? At the bottom are matters of taste. Do you prefer Leandra on the piano? Do you prefer Nate on the guitar? Who cares? It's a matter of taste. It's not about us. It's about worship. But in between those confessional absolutes, those non-negotiables, and the matters of tastes are convictions. Disputable matters. And here's where it gets tricky. Because these are things that matter but these are things that are up for, up for debate. They're up for discussion. They're up for disagreement. Like, should we baptize our babies? Some might argue that we shouldn't have disagreement about that in the church. I think you all should baptize your babies. We can talk about that later. But there are people here in this church, there are members here in this church that don't hold that conviction. It's important, but it's a disputable, debated matter. So I would argue then, brothers and sisters, that it ought to be, it needs to be confessional absolutes that bind us together. Heavenly citizenship calls us to fight as one. So what does this look like for us moving forward here at APC? Can we, can we do that here? I, I think we can. We, we have been. It's been tough. It's been hard. I've said this before, something like it. If you can't deal with the fact that there are those here worshiping with you this morning who voted for Joe Biden or vice versa who voted for Trump, then you're going to struggle to fight together with them in one spirit. 
If you can't deal with the fact that some in this congregation have strong opinions on the validity of public policy decisions in this state, then you're going to struggle to fight side by side with those brothers and sisters. But if we can live with our differences, if we can sharpen one another in our disagreements, if we can fight together as citizens, the Lord will be honored in this, and I believe that we will grow in grace as well. In the next section of this letter, we're going to deep dive both in what this looks like and in the power plant that drives it all. Drives the ability to do that, to lay your preferences aside. But briefly speaking, it's only the gospel that makes this possible. It's the world that wants to to narrow itself down to its particular tribe. Someone sent me an article a few weeks ago about the American migration that's happening right now in our country, where people are moving to live around those who share their political convictions, those who are just like them. So you have Democrats moving from the South to urban centers in the West or in the Northeast, and you have Republicans moving to red states from California and from Washington and from other places. While there's nothing sinful about this, I'm I'm not indicting anyone who has made that decision. Do, Do we need to, in the church, follow suit? Or can we, under the identity of citizens of heaven, serve the Lord faithfully wherever He has called us to serve. We we all have to wrestle with that. You have to wrestle with that. But I'm telling you that through the Gospel, we can do it. We can do it. Heavenly citizenship calls us to fight as one. Well, one final truth for us this morning before we wrap up this passage Heavenly citizenship not only calls us to fight as one, but heavenly citizenship gives us courage in opposition. Heavenly citizenship gives us courage in opposition. Going back to the war that has begun in Eastern Europe, since it's on the forefronts of everybody's mind, not only are Ukrainians not painting the curbs in the city center, but they're not bickering about who their president is is next going to be. They're not debating vaccine mandates in Kyiv this morning. They have a common enemy, and that enemy is consuming them. Paul here at the end of this sentence zooms in on the common enemy in Philippi. He speaks in verse 30, the same conflict that you say I had. Remember how Paul's time in Philippi began? I've referred to it a couple times. We read it in Acts 16. Lydia was converted. A slave girl was set free. And then all hell broke loose. Paul and Silas were beaten. They were thrown into prison. The opposition that Paul and Silas faced in Philippi is the world of unbelief. Remember in Philippi, there weren't enough Jews to start a synagogue. This is not Jewish opposition that the Philippians are facing. It is the Romans and their opposition to this newfound faith. 
The Romans called the new Christians atheists because they worshipped an invisible God that couldn't be seen. They refused to worship the emperor who was right there. The Romans disdained the new Christians because the new Christians weren't addicted to the empty pleasures that the Romans were. And so the Philippians are feeling it just as Paul felt it at the outset. And this disdain for Christianity in Philippi, it would turn into full-scale persecution in the Roman Empire. But for now, as Paul writes to these people, it's clear that these Christians were increasingly not seeing eye-to-eye with the world around them. And we fast forward here to our present time and place and we say, is it any different for us today? No. How popular are our convictions about sexuality, about marriage, about the sanctity of life, about the rights of parents, about Jesus being the only way? More than my parents' generation, certainly, we are out of step with the world. But you know what, brothers and sisters? That's okay. Let's stop our whining. We don't need to be wound up about that. Sure, we don't like it, but we don't have to think that it's strange or be surprised by it. As Paul states in verse 28, our opposition with the world confirms who we are and the ultimate end of those who oppose us. And Jesus never promised anything different. Despite what the TV preachers might say, He didn't promise that ours would be a life of prosperity, a life of being in the majority, or that our stances would be popular. What He did promise is that He is preparing a place for citizens of His kingdom and that He will soon return to take us to be where He is now. But for now, as heavenly citizens, because of this, verse 28, we are not frightened in anything by our opponents. We don't need to be. So how do we respond to those who oppose us? I was reading a one of my old seminary professors on this passage. And he divided the responses into three animal responses. I thought they were pretty good. We can respond as cornered wolves. It's one way to respond to opposition. We can lash out in anger, surprised and confused that we're being attacked. We can respond like turtles. We can tuck our heads back in, be scared, Be content to create our own little world inside our shells. Or we can be, which I fear we are increasingly being, we can be chameleons. And we can just change and compromise so that we blend in a little better. But you know, Jesus has his own animal analogy in Matthew 10, doesn't he? Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. 
Oh, baby, that's a whole other sermon that we'll have to unpack another time. But that's different than the response of wolves, turtles, and chameleons. There's a wisdom and an innocence that by grace, that by heavenly citizenship, has courage even when it's opposed. No one likes to be opposed. I hate conflict. Ask my friends. Ask the elders. No one likes to suffer. But as one author said, suffering is the friction that polishes our graces. If you don't believe that, just talk to some of your brothers and sisters here who have suffered greatly or who are are suffering greatly. Suffering for the gospel sweetens the glory to come. It helps us cut the cord to to this world and long for the next. It shows us and the world whose we are and it proclaims to the world that he is glorious above all things. Paul says that this suffering has been granted to you. Verse 29, just like, just like faith itself, just like the ability to believe Jesus has been granted to you. It's all grace. It's all part of God's plan. Therefore, we can have courage. We can fight as one. We're citizens of heaven. Amen? I don't mean to disparage Eileen Goo, but don't be an Eileen Goo. Don't be the beneficiary of all the rights and the privileges of a kingdom and yet not represent it. The gospel is worthy, Jesus is worthy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for your word once again. We thank you for the reminder for our hearts of whose we are, of where we belong. And Father, may that not just be a pie in the sky dream, but may that be something that is a reality in our day-to-day living, something that gives us courage, that gives us humility, to understand those around us, to desire to live as one, to strive as one. Oh, Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness to Your church. We thank You that amidst the evil one prowling, amidst the brokenness of her in and of herself, that You are perfecting Your bride. That You are building Your church. The gates of hell will not prevail against her. So impress these truths upon our hearts. Work in us that which is pleasing to your will, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.